Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been generously supported by PPAI. PPAI is the world's largest and oldest not-for-profit association serving the $20 billion promotional products industry. They advocate for the industry's more than 34,000 businesses and its nearly half a million professionals. PPAI is the host of the PPAI Expo, the industry's largest trade show, and is the industry's go-to source on product safety and compliance and professional development and certification programs. For more information, visit them at ppai.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by my friend and fellow chef, Larry Cohen, president of Axis Promotions. A few weeks ago, I stumbled across a great blog post written by the owner of a South African ad agency. His name was Mike Stopforth. I loved the post so much that I tracked him down in Johannesburg for an interview. The post, called The Big Agency Lie, depicted the ad agency world as a place where employees are exploited, agency executives kowtow to big-name clients, competitors mindlessly give away work for free, and no one really knows how to draw a line between work and results. Sound familiar? What struck me about this post is that the promotional industry often lurks in the shadows of ad agencies due to a perceived belief that they have their act together more than we do. To be sure, there is a lot of improvement in our industry to be had, but it was interesting to read about some of the challenges experienced in an industry many of us compare ourselves to. Let me tell you a little bit more about Mike Stopforth. Mike is the CEO of Cerebra an ad agency based in South Africa and one of the most original and creative minds in the business. Cerebra specializes in social media and social business consulting, education, and implementation for corporate brands. In 2013, WPP acquired a majority stake in the company, which is interesting in and of itself. More on that later. In 2014, he published Brand Schizo, a business book designed to help brands navigate the opportunities and challenges of the social era of business. When he's not working, Mike is golfing, drumming, fishing, running, cycling, swimming, and spending time with friends and family. Welcome to the program, Mike. Thanks, Mark. That was an exceptional intro. Could I like, maybe hire you to go around with me to clients and, and do the same intro up front? Would that be cool? <laughs> hey, man, just fly me over to Johannesburg, and I'm there tomorrow. So <laughs> it would be an honor. <laughs> that would be amazing. There you yeah, go. I, I, I pay rents, not dollars. <laughs> exactly. So let's start off with a question as to how it all got started. How did you get into the ad agency world, Mike? So it's a question I always fear people asking, Mark, because I guess the right answer would be to say that I went to ad school and I always had ambitions to help change the perceptions of brands and, and I worked my way up an agency and then eventually I got an opportunity to start my own, but that would be a lie because to be honest with you, I had no clue what I wanted to do in school. 
In fact, I think the only solace that I ever took was in Baz Luhrmann's sunscreen song where he said some of the most interesting people I know are 40 years old and still don't know what they want to do. I was like, I'm going to be one of those people. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> I had no idea what I wanted to do at school. I knew that I loved writing and I knew that I loved communicating and I guess the natural step would have been journalism, but I chose to do a course by correspondence through UNISA, which is a local university. That didn't work out for me and I landed up dropping out of university. I then spent time in a band and decided to study again, dropped out again, realizing that I wanted to, to start working. And the short end of it is that I worked a, a series of really odd sales jobs for a long time. I mean, I sold earth-moving spare parts for Caterpillar equipment. I sold uh, remote-controlled cars. I even sold inverter welding machines that we imported from Beijing. So, mm. yeah, I had, had a fairly weird career beginning. And then in 2005, I saw a person do a talk, a guy by the name of Graham Codrington, who positioned himself as a futurist and strategist. And he was talking about this idea of a connection economy, which was based largely on his observations of how certain technologies on the Internet were starting to enable individuals, normal individuals, to publish for the first time ever. And, of course, what he was talking about was blogs and wikis and podcasts and RSS, you know, the precursors, I guess, to what we now understand to be the social media movement. And I loved what this guy had to say, and I met him after the talk, and I said, please, I want to work with you. And while he was hesitant to hire me full-time, he allowed me to consult under the brand of Tomorrow Today, his consulting brand, to corporate clients. And at that point in time, what I was going to offer them was a blog consultancy, right? Because mm. I guess blogging had become a thing. And for the first time ever, I had a chance to be a publisher. So I was like, yay. <laughs> and so in a weird way, the business that was born out of those very humble beginnings, Cerebra, is a business that I guess has, as its best case study, my own story, right? Because I think if a, a random guy from the East Rand of Johannesburg who had very little promise and a pretty bad start to his professional career could find a footing in this social web and, and become a publisher and add value to the conversation and build a business out of it, then I guess what does that mean for any other employee or consumer? And I guess mm. now, nine years down the line, we can look back and, and know the answer to that question. But then I was just very lucky, I think, to be in the right place at the right time and, yeah. and I had the right people around me to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. I'll ask one more and then I'll turn it over to Larry. I'm curious as to why you wrote this post, the one that I referred to in the introduction about, you know, the evil world or the ad agency business. So I guess that would be the book end or the opposite end to the story I just told you, right? Because yeah. I started a business not knowing that it was an agency. I, I, did, I hadn't come from an agency, so I started a business to help companies understand social media. And I found out retrospectively or in the process of doing so that I was running an agency because the only way to do that was to develop content and manage communities and plan strategies but on a billable hours model. Mm. And I've grown increasingly over the years more and more skeptical of the sustainability and efficacy of that billing model based on my experiences now as, a, as I guess an outsider looking in and having to wrestle with the reality of the fact that I run a business that is first and foremost an agency and that I have to find very creative ways of making that business scalable, sustainable, and profitable on the back of what is quite an old business model, a business model that historically shows a precedent for dehumanizing clients and employees. So I wrote the post because in many ways it was largely a catharsis, an observation of my experiences over the last couple of years, an attempt, I guess, to try and consolidate all of those thoughts into 
one story. What I didn't expect was that everybody else felt the same. I honestly didn't expect anybody to read the post. And it seems like it became the Jerry Maguire of the ad agency world, you know, the Jerry Maguire post. So quite a surprising response. But yeah, I, I didn't write it to slate ad agencies. And I think that's important to understand. And the vast majority of feedback that I've got from people didn't interpret it that way. I wrote it to encourage myself and my peers and my colleagues and my contemporaries to find better ways to create healthier dynamics between our clients and ourselves for the sake of our staff and for the sake of our future. Hmm. In terms of what you're talking about, obviously if you want to change how you interact with your customers, you also need to change how you interact with your employees. And you know the big buzzword today that everyone seems to be talking about is culture. And you know something else you had written, but the customer should always come second, which I thought was really an interesting way of putting things. Which I think you meant to indicate that everything has to start at home first, which means that you've got to build the company so that you can service the customer the way that they need to be serviced. What have you done to change your own model internally so that you can try to change how they perceive and work with clients? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first thing that we try and do internally with our staff is we have the saying that shit flows uphill in Cerebra. So inevitably when something goes wrong with the lower levels of my business, it normally can be reduced. You know, often those problems or those incidences are symptomatic of a much deeper problem. And that deeper problem often comes down to mismanagement, miscommunication, a lack of skills, a lack of training, a lack of empowerment. And then, you know, you have to look upwards when that happens. You can't look downwards, right? So I believe that the first thing we've done is that we've tried to be accountable at all levels of the business. And for, for a small business, I mean, there's only 50 of us in, in the organization. We're actually quite structured. Um, there is quite a hierarchy, and I, I hesitate using the word uh, hierarchy because that implicates a power dynamic, but there definitely is a process flow in the business that allows individuals to navigate through the organization from a career perspective, but then also from a, an accountability perspective. That means that, that we know at any given point in time what a symptomatic problem's origin is, and we then try and solve those things. The next thing that we do is, is we try and make very, very brave decisions that show our employees that they are important to us. So examples would be standing up for them in front of clients in a meeting, or you know, in some instances even concluding a client relationship where we know it had reached toxic levels for whatever reason. And I mean, that happens, right? All relationships end one way or another. So you know, these are just big versions of personal relationships, and at some point in time, they're going to end. So I guess we choose the healthiest form of the breakup possible. And then I guess the last one would be this point that you made about making Cerebra our most important client. So I think that we've tried very hard to allocate as much energy as possible to living the promise that we make for our clients internally. And I think we try and treat Cerebra, our own brand, as our most important client, right? So it gets our best skills in the agency, mm. it gets our best attention, and the work that we produce whether it's events for our staff or whether it's our own advertising or marketing initiatives or the, the content that we produce as part of our editorial projects or our resources, we really do believe that that's world class. And you'd be surprised how easy it is to convince clients of your value when you can do it for yourself. Right. It's like a, a chef. I think you mentioned earlier on that, that you were chefs, or maybe that was a metaphor. But you said, you know, it's like a chef saying, my spaghetti is great, but refusing to eat it himself. You're not going to trust the spaghetti, you know? Right. And I think that's interesting because 
in our industry, there are thousands and thousands of people and companies within our industry that many people don't live what they preach. So they can go out and talk about doing great and creative projects that when you look at their website or the self-promotional item that they might use as a leave-behind is a what they would consider the kind of the tried and true and safe, possibly mundane item. And there's a, there's a seemingly big disconnect between the industry that we're in, which involves some tangible item, and often the strategy behind those items. And it's something that Mark and I tend to preach a lot with our own employees, and we're trying to get others in the industry to talk the same way. And that's part of the yeah. success, I think, of Promo Kitchen, is trying to raise the level of conversation so that it's not the tchotchke or the knick-knack or the doodad or the, you know, the, the leave-behind, but it's really an integral part of an overall campaign. One of the things I just want to go back to, I don't want to gloss over kind of how you got to where you are because I think one of the things that I've been reading about and what I think is really interesting about your story is that your story is really about success through failure, that you, you bounced around, you searched around, you tried different things. And I think you know, a lot of people today don't talk about the benefits of failing. You know, it's kind of failing up. Like you, mm -hmm. you try something, you fail, you learn something, you move on to the next thing, and you continue failing. And, you know, I, I have two teenage boys, and one of the things I think about is, like, have I let them fail enough so that when they do fail and I'm not there to save them, are they going to be able to kind of pick themselves up and move to the next thing? And, you know, I just was curious, how do you encourage kind of the safe failure within your own organization, or do you encourage that type of risk-taking within your own organization? That's a great observation, and, and I do believe wholeheartedly in quick and honest failures and then kind of reiterating from there. Look, there's also an interesting counter-argument to failure in that I think that potentially failure has been glorified a little bit in sort of you know, business folklore in the last while, so we've got to be careful that we don't encourage failure. What we've got to do is encourage initiative. Hmm. It's one thing encouraging initiative, and it's another thing encouraging failure. So we would encourage initiative in Cerebra, and I don't think we've ever been upset with anybody for trying something even if it did fail, we've been very upset for people for not trying anything. So for me, I, I would glorify initiative. I think if I've done anything right, it's not that I failed often, it's that I tried things that maybe other people wouldn't have considered trying, <laughs> maybe because I was stupid, or <laughs> maybe because I didn't have the information at hand, but I guess sometimes ignorance is bliss. But you know, I do believe that initiative is a core value at Cerebra. We interview for initiative, we test for initiative, we observe initiative, we reward initiative on a quarterly basis. And I think the people that enjoy this environment are those that feel challenged by that, and the people that don't enjoy our environment are people that need very distinct parameters and boundaries and, and want to operate within those parameters and boundaries. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of initiative, and I don't mind failure as part of it, if that makes sense. That's fantastic. I think that that's the, uh, I think the initiative part is really the key in that. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. Mike, one of the things you talk about in your post is this, I think if I got the quote right, you refer to either yourself or your brethren in the business as dancing around like monkeys at RFP time when the clients come to you with their request for proposals. And that is something that I think people like Larry and myself and certainly our colleagues in this industry completely identify with. How do you avoid being that dancing monkey given what you know? Because I'm assuming you're not the dancing monkey <laughs> any longer. No, 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 don't allow me to slip into the, the temptation of hypocrisy yet. I, of course I still dance like a monkey, right? I'm not going to pretend that I haven't done that or that I won't continue to do that. But I'm doing my very best to get to a point where I don't. So let me tell you why I think this happens, why I think that 
the pitch process is broken and why I think that it produces broken results and why I think that we're okay with it, right? So, so if I, so I've, I've got, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I've got a really badly blocked right ear at the moment. I seem to be suffering from bad sinus right now. And maybe it's just because I live in Smog City, but I'm not sure. So, so I'm going to see an, an ear, nose, and throat surgeon next week, right? Now, I didn't send out a document to four ear, nose, and throat surgeons asking them to pitch for my work and to present their credentials and possibly even to provide me with a PowerPoint presentation and some ideas for how they were going to enter my U-Station 2, right? <laughs> I didn't do that because I trust the guy based on his expertise, based on the fact that I have no reason to doubt him because he has credibility. He has exhibited thought leadership and I trust that thought leadership. Now, there's only two reasons why our clients would not trust thought leadership or our thought leadership. Number one, is that we haven't made enough of an effort to differentiate ourselves based on our expertise, what we know and how we do it, and how we add value to our clients. And number two is that we doubt it. So we land up just doing what everybody else does for a little bit cheaper or a little bit quicker or with an added widget or whatever else, which basically, you know, to quote Seth Godin, is just a race to the bottom, right? Mm. When everybody is doing everything equally poorly in an industry, that's not a good sign for an industry. So my thinking is that at Cerebra, our fight is to elevate our credibility, to elevate our stature in the minds of our customers and our clients, hmm. to give them better reasons to choose us over and above the process where possible. I mean, sometimes that's impossible, right? Especially in South Africa where corruption is a big part of, of how business gets done in some instances and to negate that, these processes are necessary. Mm. But I wouldn't have the nerves that I had going into every pitch. I wouldn't be that worried about dancing around like a monkey if I knew that the evidence that I present in that pitch is unequivocally and unarguably the best evidence for choosing us as a service provider. Mm. So the burden of proof is on me, not on the client. So we mm. tend to blame the client. And we need to look back at ourselves and go, Let, let's do a better job of elevating our credibility and expertise. There's no reason why my insights as a consultant or as a service provider be any less valuable than Dr. Vijak's input as an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Right. I just haven't qualified my credibility at the same level that he has. What you're saying is absolutely bang on. It's interesting. You, you referenced Seth Godin. He was on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago, and he saying exactly what you were talking about. It's always great to have, have a business mind like that who is outside of the industry kind of validate that. But one of the things that I'm always interested in is I think that we all know that. We all know exactly what you're talking about, whether it's in the ad business or whether in the promotional products business. But why do so few of us not act upon that? Like when it's RFP time and it's $5 million of spend or whatever, whatever the big number is, that so many people go, ah, I'll get rid of the soft stuff because I know these purchasing people just need to see the lowest price. What are some ways that you think we can break out of that? Mark, I think some of the reasons that we do it is legacy, you know, because that's the way it's always been done. So we tend to honor the legacy over the sustainability of the situation. I think quite simply the allure of the client and of the revenue can be the short-term reward of the deal, can be very romantic and exciting. And that's also got a negative side to it, right, because we get so flippant excited about these pitches and when we lose them, we're absolutely heartbroken. It's an emotional roller coaster. Mm. And then the third part is because it's very, very, very painful to pull resources off paying clients and allocate them to developing your IP and credibility, like I think we're doing at Cerebra. It is very difficult to take your MD, one of your most valuable resources, 
and put him in charge of your editorial business. I mean, my MD is the guy that runs our publishing business, the guy that produces our editorial resources every month. And the reason why is, is because I couldn't think of a better person to do that. I couldn't think of a more influential, creative, powerful, resourceful individual to go, how do we make sure that Cerebra is Cerebra's top client every month? Mm. You, you have to go through serious pain and sacrifice and compromise to do that. But I really do believe that the short-term pain shows incredible long-term rewards, you know? It's the same reason that we all know that if we invested $1,000 every month and that returned you know, 10% on an annual basis, in 50 years' time, it would have grown exponentially on compounding and whatever beyond our wildest dreams, except how many of us actually do that? You know, because the short-term pain often negates the long-term benefits. Mm. Are you experiencing in South Africa, I, mean, I know a lot of these, you know, there's these opportunities to work with directly with clients, which again, using one of Mark's terminology, you know, where some of the soft side of the presentation can really help win a client over because they understand some of the services you bring beyond just the lowest price. But we're also now experiencing a lot more secondary intermediary parties, such as you know, like an Ariba, where they're actually running the RFP, and you know, everything kind of gets dumbed down in terms of how it's presented within a structured format. Are you experiencing that down there yet, or are you still finding that these RFPs are really being run by the clients where you can actually show more of the personality of your firm? Yeah, there's one example, I think, of that here in South Africa where there is an organization that is acting as an intermediary. I don't know that it's helping the process, but I know that they are doing the work. Look, I think if you talk about that softer aspect and selling the business based on, you know, I, I think it's even in most RFPs now when they, they do the evaluation, there's a, a point for chemistry. Like, you know, do we connect with these individuals on a personality and character level? which I think is amazing, right, because that's the work we do. We do very intimate work. We're closely connected to our clients. The problem is when the pitch comes, because you've got to dance like a monkey, you put your best people in the room, right? So you've got your CEO who's tap dancing. You've got your ECV who's tap dancing. You've got your client service director who's tap dancing. Everybody's tap dancing. looks amazing. It's all Michael Flatley on the stage. And then the work gets done by the other guy, and the client's like, what the hell? Like, mm. why is the CEO not updating my Twitter account, you know? Um, <laughs> Again, which speaks to an unsustainable business model. Now, the only reason I would put myself in the room over the guy that's going to be updating the Twitter account is I don't have faith in the guy doing the Twitter account. But then that begs the question, why would I trust him with my client's Twitter account? So <laughs> it speaks to that inherent schizophrenia between what we deliver and what we actually promise, which for me is rooted in much bigger industry issues and kind of self-consciousness around our ability to add real value to our clients. Mike. What do you think of the promotional products industry? My experience of the promotional industry is twofold. One is through the eyes of a friend of mine who runs a significant promotional business here in South Africa, and the other is as a client of promotional businesses. Um, the first one is, from his view, I see how incredibly difficult it is to compete and differentiate because there's a sense from his side that it's a largely commoditized business with a very low barrier to entry. So the number and the size of the long tail of service providers in this game, the levels of specialization, whatever, are incredibly varied, right? So I get the sense that he feels that the quality of the delivery is in some ways diminished by the low barrier to entry. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I think is significant is that from a client perspective, from my experience as a client, is that when I spoke to three different service providers, and no, I didn't make them pitch, just so you know, I got the sense that there was very much of a muchness in their offering and their service provision. 
And two of the three that I spoke to said to me, look, Mike, I promise you we can do a better price, we can do a better price, we can do a better price. Now, if your only negotiating point is price, then that's also an indication of a weak point in the ecosystem, right? But we eventually landed up with a person that I think understood what we were trying to achieve with our brand more than anything else. So they came up with these wacky left field, we probably lost on price and we probably lost on lead times. We had to wait like six weeks for the one item. But they actually proposed this item. They said, guys, we don't have it in stock. It's very difficult for us to get hold of, but we know this is right for you guys. We know your business, and you mentioned this in the first meeting. We like absolutely believe that this is the right thing for you, but it's not cheap. You know, their understanding, I think, of what we were trying to achieve, they didn't try and sell us the cheapest thing at the highest quantity and the quickest delivery. They weren't looking to differentiate on those commodity service provisions. They were looking to differentiate on their insight into our organization, which for me made, made a massive difference. Yeah, it's amazing from the standpoint of being a customer at that point that you're able to put a value on that. And I mean, I suppose that would just put you in the class of a certain kind of customer that values that the ideation more than you value a cheap price on some widget. There's a third part to that, is yep. that I value my employees. So mm-hmm. for me, giving my employees a shitty hoodie. So we bought hoodies for our guys, right? They've got Cerebra branded hoodies. There's a cool logo on the front and a cool logo on the back. Now, instead of getting the no-name brand $10 a shot hoodie that I know the zip would have broken in three days or whatever, which for me is actually worse than giving my staff nothing. Hmm. So giving them a cheap piece of shit item that I know is going to break within the year is worse than giving them nothing because it basically just says, I feel like I need to keep you happy with a shitty product, right? We went and spent $30 on hoodies that I think the staff absolutely love. They wear them on a daily basis. They were way too expensive, but we know that the guys absolutely adore them, right? We have people that are coming and applying for jobs now, and all they ask in the interview is, do I get a hoodie? Hmm. So it's interesting to me how just that extra effort from our side and the extra insight from the client. So they also, the supplier in this instance, knew that the kind of hoodie I was looking for wasn't a hoodie that they had in stock. They had three in stock. They knew they couldn't provide what I was looking for, so they went and found what I was looking for. And again, that just that mattered. That meant I paid a premium. Right. Well, it just goes to show, it goes back to like, you got a great return on your investment. I believe so, but that's not really, it never really came into, I didn't try and work out how many dollars I could make from the dollars I would spend, because I understand that this is one of those things that's fairly intangible, right? Like, I don't know how many dollars I'm going to make from the pencils that I put on our front desk saying, you're the cure. You know, I don't, there's no way for me to actually measure that. So, so for me, it's more of a return on effort, right? It's, it's the effort that I put into my staff and the impact that that has on culture and perception and our ability to attract and retain talent based on that effort. Mike, that actually reminds me of something that you wrote in your post about this, the difficulty to link work with results that you have in your world. And, you know, you said something like that reminded me of that because of what you said about those pencils not necessarily being linked to a specific sale. Do you think that in this day and age that we're getting to a place where we're going to be able to do a better job of tracking the relationship between ROI and, and the investment the client has made in whatever the product is? I'm not sure that I can speak with authority to the promotional industry and how you'll be able to tie that back. I'm sure there are some clever ways that people are thinking about, but I mean, more from a social media perspective, because I guess we get asked that all the time, right, is how do you demonstrate return on investment for, you know, what is what is the value of a Facebook like or a, a Twitter follower? And I guess the conversation that we would want to have with our clients is that's only an issue if you don't know what you're trying to achieve in the first place. So the, the burden is not creating or trying to 
make up a value for a Twitter follower. It's trying to help the client right up front to identify the real business problem that they have. Hmm. And then we can develop solutions based, uh, you know, it, it, it could be any combination of things. It could be growth or reach. It could be increasing levels of engagement because they have a, a problem with awareness around the brand. It could be sentiment because maybe people are talking about them, but it's all negative. So then we would look at business processes that impact that. And there's consulting opportunities there. And lastly, I guess it would be, can we sell on this channel? Is, is it possible for us to track back actual RANDs to you know, the investment that we made in the first place? And then, sorry, I keep saying RANDs. That's our currency here, just in case your, your listeners don't know what I'm going on about. But yeah. um, I, I know it's, it doesn't mean much because I think it's like 12 RANDs to $1 at the moment. It's like monopoly money. But <laughs> at least then they'll know what I'm referring to. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the, the burden for us is not so much on demonstrating the value of a like or a follower. The burden is finding the right business problem because we can find the right business problem and we can tailor a solution to that business problem. We don't get a hell of a lot of questions around whether or not it's valuable to the client because they know we're solving the business problem. They can see it in decreased churn or improved sentiment or product sales in a certain category or whatever it may be. And that for me is a more important question to answer. When you're dealing with your customers, one of the things that you mentioned in one of your articles is that we now have information age customers with industrial age processes. So it sounds like sometimes when we're dealing with clients, it seems like they're trying to focus on you know something that's external to their specific companies. But it sounds like what you're trying to address as well with them are their own internal processes, which may be contributing or causing one of the problems that they're trying to address. Yeah. Is that, so, I mean, is that falling within the yeah. scope of what you're doing when you're dealing with them? Absolutely. So, I mean, the whole premise of the book that I wrote, which is really not that good, but, but it was a fun exercise to go through, but the whole premise of the book is that I think there is a greater risk for our clients in the gap between what they promise in their marketing and what they deliver as an organization than in having no marketing whatsoever, right? So what I keep saying to our clients is if you cannot reconcile what you keep telling people you do with what you actually do, then don't bother telling people that you do anything in the first place. Rather just do it and do it averagely and just keep on doing it and see how long you can last for. But the issue that most of our clients experience online is when they promise to be amazing or they promise to deliver a certain service level, but they cannot back it up because the legacy infrastructure or architecture of their organization simply doesn't allow for that level of service delivery. And that's not because they're evil or bad or inconsiderate or horrible, it's just because they can't. They physically cannot avoid making their complexity their customer's problem. The problem is, the issue is that we feel like we need to differentiate in our brand messaging. So your brand messaging becomes, as a byproduct, I guess, of agencies again, a facade on the front of a very broken, very convoluted organization. What we need to do rather, I think, is find creative ways to express the truth. There's only two ways to narrow the gap between what you promise and what you deliver. It's either to reduce what you promise or to improve what you deliver. Now, we see disproportionate percentages of marketing budgets allocated to acquiring new clients instead of retaining the clients that have already voted with their feet. And this inexplicable focus on acquisition as opposed to retention is what I think causes such massive unhappiness in the minds of your existing staff and your existing customers because these guys just desperately want to be recognized for the fact that they have invested in you, have cared, have voted with their feet. And, and the fact that we don't look after them and we instead spend money on trying to acquire the new guy I think is very short-sighted. And we all seem to make that mistake, right? So, so I think that there's definitely a movement towards narrowing the gap between what we deliver and what we promise but focusing on retention rather than acquisition. 
because there is no better salesperson than a happy customer, especially mm. in the social era of business. Mm. Mike, I want to shift gears a little bit and explore this idea of entrepreneurship and independence in your world. As I mentioned in the introduction, WPP had made a majority purchase of your company in, in 2013. And there are some yeah. larger, I'll just describe them as consolidators in the promotional products industry as well, where larger companies will purchase or attract a number of smaller companies within the industry and then they operationalize them and, and add efficiencies and all that stuff. Why did you decide in 2013 to sell the majority of your business to WPP? And for those listeners that are not familiar with the, the WPP, I think it's described as the world's largest ad consortium that has everything from digital marketing, social media, ad agencies, design shops, and its, uh, its breadth is absolutely enormous. So the, the answer is because I wanted to drive a fast car. Um, <laughs> actually, that's not the answer. <laughs> that might be part of the answer, of course. So, so one of the reasons was that we wanted to derive some value from the business we built. So that's absolutely obvious, right? The second reason was because WPP, as you've alluded to, has a remarkable network and significant experience building products that can be sold at significant margins and distributed through that network. And one of the ways that Cereba felt we could differentiate as an organization is to invest significant time and energy into creating IP products packaging those effectively and marketing them through the WPP network to their client base. Mm -hmm. And we've basically spent the last year mechanizing that. I mean, that's why I'm in New York City in June, is to meet with our New York office and to talk about ways for us to take these products that we've developed locally to the broader network. And those are very practical business reasons. I guess the other reason is that Craig and I, Craig being my business partner, we acknowledge that while we might have great strengths from a strategy or ideation or creative perspective, we're not the best businessmen on the planet. We're not deal makers. We're not operators. So these guys, WPP, they're remarkably good at that, right? They run and optimize businesses around the world. There's no better partner for us to have if we're willing to step aside, be humble, and go help us run a better business, which they have done, right? So we do what we do from a strategic perspective, from a relationship perspective. They're more than happy for us to do that because we've proven that we can do it very well. And they help us run a better business. And I think we, what we got right is that we're humble enough to step aside and listen to their advices and, uh, and understand their best practices in that regard. And I think where this sometimes goes wrong for agencies or businesses that are acquired is that the way they run their business is directly tied to their ego and personality. And that's when it goes pear-shaped because the acquirer comes in and goes, you know, with all due respect, this is a bit of a crappy business and you're going to have to find better ways to run it. And instead of stepping aside and going, you know, you guys are the experts, help us do that people get defensive and take it personally and I think that's a very short-sighted approach so mm. you know we get to do what we do well more often than not they help us run a better business I mean it's a match made in heaven and you know, we were warned that it was going to be a nightmare working for a big corporate and it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm not I'm not even spinning that like this has been the best decision we ever made and yeah I couldn't advocate more for the group they've been incredible did Martin Sorrell read your blog post on the agency lie <laughs> I would love to know the answer to that question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I know that a couple of my direct reports did read it and generally loved it. I mean, I think everybody feels to a greater or lesser degree what I was saying, and I don't think anybody has interpreted it as an attack on agencies. I mean, you know, to, to be fair, I did call it the big agency lie, but then in the same instance, I also wrote a blog post, I think I saw on Time Hop four or five years ago, where I spoke about 
the challenges of growing up as a young white South African in apartheid South Africa and what you inherit in terms of prejudice and your disposition. And I titled that, I'm a racist, which I'm sure you could understand was quite contentious. But the point I was making in the post is that this is a battle we all have to fight together. This is a, this is a war, an ongoing prejudicial disposition that we all have to consciously unwind if we're going to work together as a country. But I feel the same way about the agency thing. The only reason I'd write the blog post is if I'm willing to stand up and be held accountable yeah. by my staff, by my business partner, and by our direct reports as to what I'm saying. And if I can't, then it's time to give up. Yeah. That's fantastic. Obviously, one of your key focuses from the start of your career, at least in the agency world, has been kind of the recognition that social media was going to become a big part of the business world. And I know in our industry, a lot of companies are struggling with social media. How to use social media? Should they be involved in social media? And they feel some pressure to make it an integral part of their overall businesses today. And they're really afraid of the unknown. Is there advice or guidance that you give people who are in the early stages of putting their toe in the water in social media, and maybe can you suggest some resources for them? Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Thanks for the opportunity. So there's a great quote that I think summarizes this. If I had to take the last 10 years and put it into a nutshell, it's a, it's a quote from 2006, actually. It says, to find something comparable to this, you know, this social movement, one has to go back 400 years to the printing press, which is ultimately the birth of mass media. And the irony of the printing press is that it, it was the thing that destroyed the old world of kings and aristocracies and gave people of the time, illiterate people of the time, the opportunity to build knowledge and in, in many ways spurned the Industrial Revolution. And the quote goes on to say that the same thing is happening today, right? So people are taking control thanks to the use of technology, which is dethroning the media elite, the gatekeepers, the, the great bastions of influence of, of our time. Now, the funny thing about that quote was it was actually Rupert Murdoch who said it, hmm. which I find hilarious. In 2006, in, in a Wired magazine article where he was being interviewed after just investing in MySpace. I'm lucky for Rupert. Anyway, so, so the, point is that, <laughs> the point is that I think that what's happened in the last couple of years, if we narrow social media down to its lowest common denominator, the unpublished have become published. And if that's as big a deal as I think it is, then that means that if Gutenberg's printing press, which made the illiterate literate, burned an entire industrial revolution, this social media evolution, if you like, makes the unpublished published. I wonder what revolution that, that will spurn, right? And I think 50 years from now, we'll look back at these last 10 years and go, how the hell did we not get how big a deal this was for us? How, how did we not realize how significant it was for society and uh, commerce and politics? And I think some of us have a sense of that. Uh, I think most of us have a sense of that because we can see the impact on our personal lives and our families, but it's quite difficult to grasp it in its entirety. My advice to businesses that are looking to engage in social media is plan properly. Think about what you have to say. Develop a content strategy that's true to who you are, true to what you want to achieve as an organization. And if you can't fulfill on that, then there's no shame in not being on social media. There's only shame in making an attempt that is very poorly executed and that makes your business look inadequate or incapable of having a real conversation. But I think the important thing to remember is that these are platforms that were built for human beings to connect with human beings not for businesses to connect with human beings. And our default stance must be understanding that we begin with a handicap as an organization, that we're on the back foot. You know, we're, we're businesses that are, are being introduced to somebody's private dining room and invited to have a conversation with them. And if we don't do that the right way, it can backfire horribly, as I'm sure every one of your listeners is aware. So, mm. you know, we've done quite a lot of work trying to understand this, and we do publish a lot of stuff 
for free, we've got at least 16 or 17 free resources on Cerebra's page. If you go to cerebra.co.za forward slash resources, there's a whole bunch of ebooks there that your listeners can download, and I'd love it if they did do that and give us feedback. And we've covered everything there. We've covered legal things. We've covered personal branding. We've covered social media service, all sorts of stuff. So, so there's some cool stuff there. Mike, just taking a look at the time here, it's hard to believe that this has gone by so quickly. We always like to give our guests the last word. Is there anything that you'd like to say about yourself, your services? You've given some resources as to where people can go take a look on your site, but are there other things that you'd like to let people know about in the Promo Kitchen community before we close off? No, I mean, thanks, Mark. That's very generous of you. And, and again, thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope I didn't uh, talk your ears off, but... I would love it if guys, if they you know, disagree or want to debate or want to have a conversation, please just connect with me on Twitter, at Mike Stopforth. I'm pretty easy to find there. Uh, otherwise, uh, have a look at the blog. And, and then, yeah, the final word, I guess, for, for anyone in business, uh, any one of my contemporaries or colleagues you know, across the ocean, is to say that like, I think there are better ways to do this. I think that we can rise above some of the muck and find smarter more efficient ways to discount some of the horrible legacies that we inherit in our industries and, and find better ways to do it. I'd rather do that and die trying than, than not try at all, you know? Yeah. Um, and finally, this great, great little sentence that I heard the other day, which is, don't be bitter, just be better. And it kind of resonated with me. Yeah. So I'd encourage your listeners, don't be bitter, just be better. <laughs> That's awesome. Larry, how about you? I think this has been, it's fantastic. And as, as you said, Mark, it, this stuff always goes by way faster than I would like because there's always so many more questions. So I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm sure we're going to have more conversations offline because I really like the direction you're taking your agency, and I think we're kind of situated in a similar industry that is kind of struggling with some of the same things that you guys have gone through. So I look forward to more. Thanks. I look forward to seeing you in New York City. Yeah. Absolutely. And Mike, on behalf of the whole Promo Kitchen community, thank you for being our first South African guest ever. That is super cool. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.